Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to put you in a scenario. All right, let's do it. Okay, so just recently I was at a, a family gathering, a wedding, an old family event. And when you go to a you know family reunion type event, you meet a lot of people you haven't seen in a long time. You get to catch up on what they're doing. Yeah. So imagine you are at a, a family reunion type event and you're talking to a distant cousin of yours who's uh, going to night school to get her graduate degree. And you're like, oh, cool, yeah, I do, I do a science show. Uh, what are, what are you studying at your uh, your school? And she could give you a couple of answers. Let's contemplate the first one. The first answer is, oh, I study radio astronomy. So we look at distant objects in the sky by measuring the radio frequency energy they emit. And you're like, cool. So how does that work? And she says, well, so we aim radio telescope arrays at faraway stars and galaxies and we collect the data and feed it into computers. And that allows us to draw conclusions about the physical properties of those objects. All right. Sounds legit. Okay, here's another answer she could give. She says, oh, yeah, I study psychic astrosociology. So we study distant civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy by tuning into the psychic energies that they beam to our planet through their pneumotransmitters. Okay, there are a number of red flags already. Yeah, so you don't even really have to be a scientist or even very scientifically literate to tell that one of these answers refers to real science and the other one does not. But... The, the question you should ask yourself is, what is the criterion you have used? You've intuitively used some kind of rule to rule in one of those answers as real science and rule out the other one as fake science, pseudoscience. It sounds like garbage. So you know the difference when you see it, but what is the principle that actually makes the difference? Right. And it, and this question becomes ever more important when you when you move away from the obvious examples and you get into that uh that stretch of gray area that yeah. uh, that uh, that borders the the dividing line um now in terms of pseudoscience i do want to throw in real quick that um the oldest known use of the word pseudoscience dates back from 1796 uh when the historian james petit andrew referred to alchemy as quote a fantastical pseudoscience and certainly uh you can, you can make that uh, a case for that with alchemy. Well, maybe if you have a closed mind, I'm going to get some <laughs> gold eventually. I mean, in some ways, alchemy was kind of a, a proto-science, but the, the the actual scientific properties in alchemy, and this is kind of a topic for another day, um, are kind of lost yeah. amid all the, the occult uh, concerns. Uh, but in the philosophy of science, exactly this problem, this problem of what rule do you use to tell the difference between science and pseudoscience has a name. It has, it's a named problem, right? Yeah, the uh, demarcation problem. Yeah, you're drawing the boundary, setting the border between uh, one side and the other. Yeah, between truth and falsehood, between good and bad, between sin and virtue. I mean, it, yeah. it, and it, it sounds pretty simple. Uh, but it's a, it's a very important concern for the philosophy of science for a, a couple of different reasons. Mm-hmm. From a purely theoretical point of view, uh, it's important. Philosophers talking to each other about what things mean and the depth of their meaning, but also from a very practical point. And that's because, um, obviously science is humanity's most reliable font of knowledge. It's the, the, the tower we've built, uh, that we use to ascend to new heights, uh, technologically speaking, cosmologically speaking. Uh-huh. Uh, it's our, it's our best method for advancing solutions and something we're constantly touting in advertising, healthcare, criminal justice, environmental policy, entertainment, politics, and everything in between. Yeah, so science is applied. Science yeah. isn't just a, a intellectual endeavor taking place in a vacuum. Once we have a scientific conclusion, we very often take that conclusion out and do something with it. Yeah, it's not just in the monastery on the hill. It's down in the marketplace. It's in the, the household. It's it's factoring into your decisions. I mean, it, it, like we were saying earlier, it's one thing to to hear someone's diatribe about some very fringy topic and and instantly judge. Oh, well, that's that's complete malarkey. That's pseudoscience. But where it gets 
gets weirder is when you're picking up a product at the super at the supermarket, yeah. you know, or you're you're you there's a vitamin supplement bottle exactly. in your hand, and then you start trying to figure out, wait, this is speaking the language of science. It's not hitting those crazy keywords that my cousin was throwing out at this imagined wedding. Uh, what am I to do? Megavita fan burns fat fast. Yeah, should I trust this? I mean, yeah, so it, it has real implications in the real world. It, it impacts your wallet and it impacts the, the budgets of countries that fund scientific research. You don't want the government funding research in something that is complete bunk. Right. So getting to this question of demarcation, like how do you tell the difference? What rule do you use? One one common dictionary definition of pseudoscience is something like, Quote, a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded as being based on the scientific method. <laughs> well, that's okay. not very helpful, is it? Right. Because that, that just it's circular. It invokes the concept of science right. to say what's not science. So it's not helpful for solving the demarcation problem uh, because it just says pseudoscience is that which appears to be science, but is not. Those who are entering the Tower of Science and not doing science there or something to that effect, because, yeah, because the, uh, the, the, the scientific method is still present, at least it's invoked, right? So it becomes difficult to decipher. Yeah, so to really solve the problem, you'd want to come up with some descriptive rule that exclusively describes science. It's like a, a descriptive statement that describes everything that is science and rules out everything that is not science. But it's hard to come up with a rule like that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, again, especially as you you become closer and closer to the boundary line, Mm -hmm. you know, it's um, because as we'll discuss here, it's it's kind of like imagine the border between two states Mm -hmm. and you have you have a couple you have a couple of towns. Right. And one's just uh, immediately on one side of the, the state line. The other's on the other. And if you're applying a very strict understanding of boundary lines here, then this one is definitely in Arkansas and this one's definitely in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But then if you start saying, well, actually, there's a little room uh, to, to go on either side, then it just then, then you're confounded. All right. Is this one in Tennessee or is this one in Arkansas? How about this one? Are they both in both states or is it just how I feel when I visit that town? Right. So a lot of the the solutions to the demarcation problem try to draw some clear line. Okay, here we have an exclusive rule that makes the distinction. So I know a lot of scientists and some philosophers of science would probably want to make a distinction based on empiricism as as the first criteria, Mm -hmm. right? So empiricism is the idea that it involves observations. You know, it's what you see or what you can measure externally. Yes. That science can't be just an internal logical exercise that has no contact with something you see happening in the real world. Yeah, there has to it has it's evidence based. Right. Then, of course, you've also got the, uh, you know, the scientific method that you learned in elementary school. Some people would look at that and say, OK, you know, that's basically how science works. You ask a question, you make an educated guess. That's your hypothesis. You do some kind of empirical test uh, on observable reality to see if your guess is correct. Then you analyze the results and draw conclusions. And, you know, that's a good simplified version for kids to learn. Yeah. I mean, it's how do you walk into a dark room and find out? Uh, what uh, what what the the room contains yeah uh, and accurately judge it without, you know, hitting your head on something. But there's a problem with that if we're trying to describe science as it happens in the real world of professional discoveries, because it doesn't th- that method doesn't very closely describe the process by which we came up with all kinds of important and correct scientific theories in history. Like lots of theories in physics, for example, were just conceived simply as abstract thought experiments. Right. And they went for a long time without empirical tests. Now we've empirically tested them and we know, but they just started in Einstein's head. There are a number of scientific concepts that were conceived or certainly the the the, uh, the people behind them attributed their conception to dreams. Yeah. You know, so it, it's hard to fit the dream world into any serious contemplation of scientific method. Right. Uh, yeah. So there, there are plenty of examples you can go through through history of uh, scientific theories that we didn't have empirical confirmation of for a long time, uh, even after people had accepted them as probably true. Uh, you know, one good example that comes up in the debate we're going to be talking about today is the, the question of atoms. Yeah. 
For a long time, scientists knew that matter was based on atoms, but there was no test they could do to confirm the existence of atoms. Right. Now there are, fortunately, but we didn't, we didn't have those tests for a long time. Another problem with the basic scientific method you learn in elementary school is that if you just have some bad methodology, you can rule in plenty of pseudoscience, right? Oh, yeah. Like, if you just use the scientific method, but you use it poorly, you Mm -hmm. can prove the existence of psychics, ghosts, aliens, whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, we see this time and time again, right? There'll be one guy who is able to create a a zero-gravity state in a lab. Yeah. And then everyone else tries to replicate it, and they don't get the same results. Right. And therefore... Either, either what? Everybody's wrong and this one guy got it right once? No, it's the reverse. Yeah, he used the method. He just did a really bad job yeah. of using the method. A- another way that I think some people would address how to define science and, uh, and solve the demarcation problem is, I, I think, totally useless. And they define science in a kind of post hoc, back engineered, pragmatic sense. Mm-hmm. As in, they define science as the method of inquiry which produces correct and useful results. This is obviously not a helpful solution to the demarcation <laughs> problem. Now, if you're hearing all of this and thinking, yeah, but then again, I mean, scientists are just doing their scientific work. Do they really need to worry about all of this, uh, this philosophical back and forth? Like, is this just a lot of talk that doesn't really amount to anything? I would argue, no, it is not. I, I think these philosophical concepts are crucial to, to doing good science. Yeah. And, uh, Especially when you when you start facing the realization that you, you can't just do the science, right? Right. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful quote from uh, Daniel Dennett uh, from his book Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which we've uh, discussed this in a previous episode. Yeah. Uh, but it, he says, "quote Scientists sometimes deceive themselves into thinking that philosophical ideas are only at best decorations or parasitic commentaries on the hard, objective triumphs of science, and that they themselves are immune to the confusions that philosophers devote their lives to dissolving." But there is no such thing as philosophy-free science. There is only science whose philosophical baggage is taken on board without examination. I entirely agree with that quote. I, I think that's right on the money. I mean, if you hear a scientist say, I don't bother with philosophy, I'm not interested in philosophical con- uh, concepts, I just do the science, it's kind of like if you had a person running for president who mm-hmm. says, look, I'm not political, I'm just going to govern. Would you trust that person? I I mean, the reality is what they are going to be governed by some kind of philosophy, whether they acknowledge it or not. And uh, in the person who claims not to have a philosophy or not to have, you know, any kind of ideology guiding them is just advertising the fact that they haven't thought very deeply about this. Yeah, they because I, I like the idea of a non-political uh, individual just judging without uh, and just ruling without any kind of, uh, uh, you know, weird hang ups and constraints and agenda. But for that to really work, you'd have to have um, like a superhuman. You'd have to have someone yeah. with like a, a self-moving soul, uh, with someone who could um, who could think and approach the task at hand with just pure logic, unmoved by the undercurrents of opinion, bias, trauma, or longing. Uh, you know, part of the, the the issue here is that science itself, with the scientific method as, as its backbone, is is kind of a perfect engine, right? Yeah. Uh, and and we are its flawed operators. So per, perhaps you know what we need here. If, we're to look to like the Dune universe. We need like Mintat scientists, right? Um, or uh, we would need uh, Dunyan scientists or Bodhisattvas of scientific inquiry. Wait, or, what do you mean Dunyan? What is that? Oh, uh, there are a there are people that are kind of like Mintats in um, uh, R. Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse Saga. Okay, so they've been able to just re- through just generations and generations of selective breeding and uh, and and personal. Uh, Training, mm-hmm. they've managed to enter the to to breed a, a people that are completely uh, in the now, completely in control of their of, of their soul and their mind state. So they're they're not governed by uh, you know past concerns. And when they encounter people that are not Dunyane, they can just completely manipulate them because okay. they they sort of stand outside of that path. Humans engineered to no longer have preferences to only be computers sort of. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And but that's the other thing. Maybe what we need is an advanced uh hypercomputer, uh, some sort of a, you know, super AI that could do all of the science, that could that could be science without uh-huh. the human concerns. Yeah. 
But we don't have that right. right now. We just have the humans with some help from the computers. Right. So today, the main topic that we're going to be talking about is the idea of uh, empiricism and falsifiability in science. And we're going to get to what those uh, what falsifiability means in a second, but also about whether we have entered a phase in science where there is room for a concept known as post empiricism. Mm. And if that sounds crazy to you, we, we will explain what the arguments are in just a bit. But we should bring it back to the history of this demarcation problem. How do you separate the science from the pseudoscience? And one of the most common answers given by scientists today would be traceable back to the 20th century philosopher of science, Karl Popper. So who was Karl Popper? Uh, Popper was an Austrian-British philosopher, generally regarded as one of the 20th century's greatest philosophers of science. And he identified demarcation as the, the chief problem in the philosophy of science. Again, how to judge science, separate it from, from pseudoscience, separate the sin from the virtue here. Uh-huh. Just draw a really firm line in the sand that we can stick by and judge everything accordingly. And he thought he came up with an answer to the problem, right? Yeah, yeah, he thought he came up with, with a pretty solid answer. And really, uh, I, was, I was reading about his life, like, he stuck to his guns, like, towards the end yeah. of his life. You know, he said he had plenty of critics who said, actually, this doesn't work or blah, blah, blah. We'll get into the, the specifics in a second. But he was devoted and he would he spent his time either clarifying what he had said or shooting down his critics. So, uh-huh. yeah, he's he's he stuck to his guns on this. But what was his answer? How can you tell the difference between science and pseudoscience? What qualifies something as real science? Yeah. What is what is the litmus test? Right. The answer he gave is falsifiability. So what does that mean? So according to Popper, in order for a proposition, right or wrong, to be scientific in nature, it has to be falsifiable, meaning you have to be able to describe empirical results, test results in the real world that would show the proposition to be false. And then in order to to strengthen a theory, to build confidence in it, you have to continually seek these exceptions to your rule. You have to keep looking for ways to break your theory and you have to fail to attain them over and over. Yeah. And this means there has to be such thing as a critical test for any given proposition in order for it to be scientific in nature. Right. Uh, And so let's give some examples in in science. Just uh, throw out a theory, what the rule is, and then explain how how could you falsify it. So here's one. Einstein's special theory of relativity says the speed of light in a vacuum is the same for all observers. Now, if you could get people in spaceships moving at different speeds to measure the speed of light in a vacuum and get different results, then special relativity is wrong. It's falsified. The theory is, in principle, falsifiable. Another one would be, how about common descent? Uh, Common descent says that all life on Earth is related and it evolved from a single organism known as the last universal common ancestor, or LUCA. So if we looked at the genomes of plants and animals and bacteria, all the different kingdoms of life, and we found that they had all completely different genes and used different genetic tools to accomplish the same basic survival tasks, like, say, uh, metabolism, metabolizing sugars or something, this would probably falsify common descent. It would make it look like the kingdoms of life had multiple different origins, but that's not what we find. So there, there is support for common descent. And here's one example that's often uh, was often touted by Popper himself. So astronomers of the 19th century looked to the, uh, the 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 orbit of Uranus. Okay, something seemed a bit off here. So two separate uh, astronomers they pointed out that the orbit of Uranus could be explained via Newtonian physics uh, as being caused by a seventh and previously unknown planet, mm. which of course. Turns out to be Neptune. Uh, astronomers uh, uh, subsequently discover Neptune, and it's exactly where these two different astronomers predicted that it would be. Yeah. So Popper argued that in this, Newton's theory was subjected to a critical test, and it passed. But critics would have a different view of this. Critics such as uh, uh, Emir Lactose uh, point out that if they'd been in error, if the, if the two scientists here had been wrong, if we hadn't found Neptune exactly where it is, 
we wouldn't have thrown out Newtonian physics, right? right? We would have uh, looked for other possible culprits. Uh, any of the number of reasons that those uh, th- that their uh, their their theory here could have been wrong. So it was hardly a test of Newtonian physics at all. The the falsification uh, corroboration uh, disjunction might very well just be too simplistic. Yeah, and that's true. That there are plenty of criticisms of the the Popperian. Is that the word, Popperian? The 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 falsification criteria uh-huh. in the philosophy of science, but but this has been one of the big ones that people have have latched onto uh, over the past century. Now uh, to to continue exploring falsification. On the contrary, imagine what it's like to have a proposition where you can't come up with any in principle empirical test that would provide strong evidence against it. If you have something like this, this is not a good thing. So imagine a psychic medium claims to get information from the spirit world. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, let's come up with some tests for this. Uh, let's say let's test the information that he's getting from the spirit world and find out if it accurately reflects uh, information about dead people that he wouldn't have been able to know. He can always say, well, actually, wait a minute. My powers aren't going to work in the presence of the negative energy created by skeptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, well, maybe we can put some believers in place and blind them to the test and see if you're getting accurate information. The psychic could still say, well, wait a minute. There are also malicious spirits who are responsible for feeding me incorrect information. Uh, so in a, in the end, there is no evidence that could really count against his powers. Anything that could count against it is explained away. Yeah, you see this with a lot of supernatural ideas. Like one of the big ones, of course, uh, one that I often think about is the hand of God uh, analogy here. So if God exists outside of our universe, yeah, all right, if he's outside of our universe, we can't really do anything to disprove or prove, right? Because he's not a part of the observable universe that we can test mm-hmm. and we can measure. Now, it's been argued that if the hand of God then reaches into our universe to do things, you know, uh, you know, create life, turn a city to salt, whatever, mm-hmm. then that hand has to interact with our universe. It has to interact with atoms and molecules. And therefore, we would be able to measure a supernatural presence, uh, a presence from the outside reaching into our own by the way it moved our molecules, our atoms our world. Oh, okay. So that makes it sound like the presence of supernatural interaction should be in theory testable. But, but when you bring that up, people, because, because then you say when we've never observed that, people will say, oh, well, he, he doesn't have to. Uh, he or she, it does not have to move the molecules. And then, but then you're just saying, oh, well, then they, re- they don't have to obey any of the laws. And so it's super untestable. Right. You're removing all possible conditions that could falsify what you're claiming. Right. It kind of becomes like an argument between, uh, kindergartners about uh, who just blasted who with a laser gun on the playground. Yeah. Like they can both deny uh, that they've been vaporized by a laser gun based on, uh, you know, increasingly preposterous ideas about how the laser gun worked and what kind of imaginary armor they were wearing. Right. But, uh, of course, theories that are unfalsifiable in nature don't necessarily just uh, appeal to the the paranormal psychics and, you know, ghosts and aliens and stuff like that. You could also have secular unfalsifiable theories. How about this? one we are living inside a computer simulation oh yeah i love this one now there might be some ways that smart people could come up with to test whether or not this is true you could say well you know on a computer simulation we'd expect to find x if we don't find x that's evidence against it maybe but as far as i know there's no test you could perform to falsify the statement that we're living in a computer simulation there's no way to prove this isn't correct and thus, it's just sort of like one of those things, well, that's interesting to think about, but mm-hmm. it seems unscientific in nature. Yeah, because if we're in a perfect simulation, we're in a perfect simulation. And how would you possibly see outside of it? Yeah. It's um, it's kind of like this, uh, there's a fabulous um, description of human sight uh, that was um, uh, related to me over the weekend. And that's the idea that uh, when you look at something with your uh, through your vision, um, you're essentially regarding a timeline of the evolution of human vision. So the corners of your eyes, you, uh, you're encountering just blurry shapes, less color, less detail. And as you move in towards the center of your eye, that's where you can actually make out the details and, and, and very precise movements and changes. And, and so it's a, it's a timeline that converges at the center. 
And, huh. but then that makes it kind of difficult, if not impossible, to envision things further along in the timeline because it's not a linear system, you know? Huh. It's a, it's, it's closed to us, I guess, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, that's a very interesting, uh, statement. I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep, uh, keep thinking about it because it, it, I think it's applicable to a lot of things, a, a lot of, uh, topics concerning the limits of our, of our observation, the limits of our, of our experience. Completely unrelated side note. Okay. Did you know that, uh, if you have people hold up colored flags at the very edge of your vision, you will not be able to tell what color they are. Oh yeah. Well, that makes sense because to, to go with the timeline analogy, you are seeing out of your corner of your eye. You're yeah. seeing with, with a very primitive form of vision, but we have the illusion that the corners of our eyes have color to them. Oh yeah. Like when you look out, yeah, my peripheral vision has just as much color as the center of my vision. You can test this and show it to be false. That state statement is falsifiable mm-hmm. and has been falsified because when you hold up these red flags at the very edge of your vision, uh, you can't tell the difference between red, blue, orange. Try it out. Yeah, yeah. No matter what your memory says, because your mind is uh, stitching it all together into some form that makes sense, at least uh, you know at a glance. Okay, so we've got this criterion here for for the demarcation problem. Real science is falsifiable. It makes predictions, and it says, if this were true, my theory would be false. Ideas that don't conform to this are, in our, exper- in our experience, incredibly annoying to interrogate. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say, in our experience, do not generate accurate predictions, technologies, or new knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, because if it's just if it's an idea that you can't test, you can't prove, you can't do experiments on it, all you can do is just sort of is either nod along or shake your head. Mm-hmm. You're not going to conduct any experiments and, and learn something more about the 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 inner workings of reality. Yeah. Uh, one last distinction I want to make before we start to get to this weird world of the idea of post-empiricism. So there's another type of empirical theory of science that's simply a corollary, I would say, of falsification, and that's verification. And this uh-huh. is actually the older theory. So it's they're both empirical. They're really two halves of the same coin, right? But with verification, you make a positive prediction and then you test to see if that's the case. So my prediction is that uh, all cows on Earth are brown. Okay. Um, so you go out and look and let's say you find some brown cows. Oh, what do you know? My theory is correct. So you can sort of see the problem with this. You can keep testing and looking for brown cows and finding brown cows. And if you were to regard these, the fact that you keep finding brown cows as an uh, evidence that your theory is correct, instead what you should be doing is looking for non-brown cows, and you keep looking for them. And eventually, if you find a non-brown cow, then your theory has been falsified. Right. It's like finding a, a black swan. Yeah. And then it changes what you know about swans as they actually exist. Now, of course, the fact that all uh, the statement that all cows are brown is wrong. That is wrong, even if it is formulated in such a way that it could be falsified. An unfalsifiable version of the same idea would be cows that appear brown to all observers and instruments are nevertheless not really brown. (laughs) That that is worse than being wrong. It's not even wrong. It's unfalsifiable. But so one takeaway from this, of course, is that you never actually verify a theory under the criterion of falsifiability. There's Mm -hmm. no such thing as 100 percent confidence that a theory is correct. You just keep building up higher and higher levels of confidence every time you try to find an exception, every time you try to falsify it and you can't. Yeah. So in that I mean, in that sense, the, the boundaries of scientific understanding uh, are, are constantly shifting. They're constantly changing, uh, at, at least, you know, in the realms beyond like extremely verified uh, fact. Right. But like, to- is red wine good for you? Is coffee good for you? Oh, this yeah. Is, this is a, a line that is that is continually changing. Right. And that's a problem because that, that, that question is not well defined. Right. What do you mean good for me? I mean, yeah. on average, how do you compare the different goods versus mm-hmm. bads? Goods and bads. <laughs> what are studied by science? All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to get into post-empiricism. Okay, so we've established uh, that some scientists and philosophers of science ha- have latched onto this idea of falsifiability, or at least some version of empirical confirmation as uh, as the criterion you use to tell science from pseudoscience. But 
are there any scientific problems that would lead a non-quack, that would lead a respectable scientist who does real work with, with real data to propose a non-falsifiable hypothesis? Actually, there are some cases where we have very smart, very respectable scientists who are doing work in, on hypotheses that are widely agreed to be non-falsifiable, at least today. Yeah. And so how about fundamental physics? What's at the bottom of our physical theory of the universe? Well, depends on who you ask. Yeah. But if you ask uh, a, a certain portion of the uh, scientific community uh, and the philosophic community, uh, they will say string is at the, the bottom of everything. Yes. And we're, of course, talking about string theory. Now, I know what you're thinking out there. You're thinking, hey, uh, Robert and Joe, I didn't sign up for string theory on this episode. Well, you're getting some string theory. But we'll, we're going to blow through just a very quick definition of what it is, a reminder of what it is, so that we can proceed. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're going to be fairly limited in this, I think. Because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to go in too deep on this. Uh, I mean, it, you can really leave it at just imagining a, a cartoon character in a sweater and what happens when someone pulls on the thread at the bottom of <laughs> and everything unravels. That is true. That is the full scientific definition. But uh, but to go a little deeper, um, okay, so you have particle physicists who define elementary particles or fundamental particles as the smallest building blocks in the universe. In other words, particles such as leptons and quarks have no substructure. They're as small as it gets. You can't split them up. Right. Now, that's not the case for string theorists who think we need to venture deeper or smaller than our current technology allows. So they propose that each so-called fundamental particle, fundamental particle actually contains a tiny vibrating one-dimensional loop of string. The vibration of the string determines the, the charge and mass of the greater particle. So super string theories take this idea and build the entire universe from the bottom up. Uh, and it's it's a challenging task, and that's why we speak of string theories in the plural, because there are several different string theories that attempt to make it all work. Mm-hmm. At least uh, ten dimensions are called for. Um, a lot of math physicists provo- pr- propose that any dimensions beyond time and visible space are folded up out of sight mm-hmm. into these uh, you know very complex. Uh, uh, extra-dimensional shapes that you often see uh, rendered with computer graphics on string theory articles. Yeah, tiny extra dimensions that uh, that, that we can't even measure. They're they're just too small for us to perceive. Yeah, crawling with shadow creatures that come out to grab children. <laughs> um, so, and and is and is that that would indicate a, a superstring theory is still developing, meaning that physicists continue to work out the kinks in the individual string theories. But they're eventually what they're aiming to do is, fuf- is fulfill Einstein's unrealized goal of unifying general relativity with quantum theory. And that's why string theory uh, is also sometimes called uh, a-, a theory of everything, because right. it would serve someday as a foundation for all future scientists, uh, scientific discovery and, and innovation. The idea that it is a. Uh, an incomplete section in this grand bridge. Yeah. So another way string theory is often characterized is that that it's a unification attempt. Right. It, te- it attempts to bring together macrophysics, things like relativity, you know, that happen on huge energies and 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 scales, with microphysics, the stuff in the quantum world, you know, very very small. Uh, right now we have strong theories of microphysics that explain very well what we see at those scales, and we have strong theories of relativity that explain very very well what we see, you know, with gravity at huge scales, but they just don't mesh together very well. And so string theory would attempt to explain all those things with one underlying theory that, that implies both of them. And in reality, the theory is just a set of mathematical models, right? It's mathematical models showing the behavior of these strings and how they could produce the effects of the universe we see at these different scales. But there's a problem, right? String physics phenomena are too tiny to observe, even with our most powerful experimental instruments. They can't be found by our particle colliders or anything else we're likely to build in the near future. So we can make a mathematical string theory model that very beautifully explains everything we already know, but we can't use it to predict any new physical results that we'd be able to detect and use to confirm or falsify it. Right. So that's sort of a problem, right? Yeah. Is this still science? Wait a minute. Now, if we're just coming up with mathematical instruments that explain what we already know, 
but don't make predictions that we can experimentally test. What is it science and is it useful? Yeah, it's, it sounds like it's like putting the car in, if not park, then at least neutral. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's going to stop moving after a while, right? Right. Uh, here's another one. How about cosmology? Oh, yeah. What's um, the ultimate nature of the universe? It's a big question with big answers, big answers that we often cannot test, uh, generally cannot test. Uh, I mean, go, going, you know, on one side, just say the existence of God or gods, mm-hmm. but also you get into multiverse theory, the idea that our universe is just one of many and essentially the, the library of Babel, right? Right. Yeah. So it, it's that movie multiplicity. Mm-hmm. Wait, what was that movie? Is that the one? Is this with one where Jet Li kills all the other Jet Lees to gain power? No, I think that's the one. Oh, that's yes. a really good one, though. Uh, no, I'm thinking, what's the one that has lots of uh, the guy Michael Keaton? Michael Keaton. Yeah, yeah. The, the clone Michael Keaton's. Yeah, I think it's Multiplicity. That's okay. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. I was confusing it mentally with Virtuosity. The one. Oh, that has with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe is like a synthetic human clone. Yeah, and Denzel Washington. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And anyway. battle each other. I just remember he had like, there's a blue blood or something like that. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, like string theory, th- there's this idea of the multiverse that's pretty much untestable. It's, but it, it could be a very elegant outworking of the data we already have. So we have a bunch of observations. We say if there were many, many universes, it would explain some of the things we see. But we can't make a prediction based on the belief in the many, many universes that we can test. Yeah. At least there's not a clear one. In fact, I, I think I have read some physicists suggesting that multiverse could maybe be potentially tested in theory based on something about space-time geometry. But I think that's an ongoing debate that I, I don't fully understand. Yeah, a lot of this kind of it, it boils down to... The, the the prospect of building a bridge into the darkness and how far into the darkness are you willing to build that bridge to accepting that the uh, the necessary substructure will be there right okay well in this case if we are talking about science and you know real science mm-hmm. so maybe multiverse cosmology or string theory being true. Some, some people would have a problem with that statement exactly no 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 i'm saying if we consider these things mm-hmm. science uh, it, it seems like we need to sort of revise what our demarcation problem solution is, right? Right. Uh, assuming we were starting with falsifiability, which a lot of modern philosophers of science probably wouldn't. Um, and so he, here's where we get into the idea of post-empiricism, the idea of so just meaning after empiricism, after only being based on observations and physical tests. And I want to talk about a theoretical physicist turned philosopher named Richard David, uh, who has studied and written in favor of the concept of post-empiricism on behalf of string theory. And he, he had this interview with 3AM magazine that was published in July 2014. He, but he also wrote a book called String Theory and the Scientific Method. And, and he tries to make a case for a new sort of philosophy of evaluating the scientific merits of theories that isn't just based on empirical testing. Uh, that sounds kind of crazy, right? But, but let's see what he has to say. Yeah. So you've got string theory. You, you've got this problem that you can paint a self-consistent picture of the mathematical properties of strings. And if they existed, they'd answer a lot of questions, right? They, they would help unify our view of physics. But there's currently no way we know of to directly detect strings or their effects. So in what sense is string theory different from saying invisible acid gremlins push all the particles in the universe around to produce the effects we interpret as microphysics and general relativity? Yeah. Is it any better? And and David would argue that these are not equally valid claims, that string theory is actually much better as a scientific claim, even if it's not empirically testable. And the thing is that that feels like a true statement, right? Yeah, but not everyone would agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead, David thinks that even in cases where you can't falsify a theory empirically, you can establish confidence in the theory with the use of philosophical and probabilistic arguments sort of about the research program that produced the theory. It's sort of a meta science. It's judging the quality of science by the scientific situation that created it. Okay. 
So let's try to give some examples of the arguments he would give on behalf of something like string theory. One argument is the lack of alternative theories. Okay. Okay. This so it kind of goes back to Sherlock Holmes logic. Yeah. It's, it's the only game in town. David says string theory is the only theory that integrates into one overall theory, our topical understanding of high energy physics based on gauge field theory and our understanding of cosmology based on general relativity. So he's saying that there just aren't any other theories that explain all this stuff. It's the only one we've come up with that seems viable. And David also argues that in the past, when we had no alternative to a consistent theory, that theory was often later shown to be correct. So there's sort of a precedent for saying, well, when scientists are working on a question and they come up with a theory that answers the question, even if it's not uh, empirically testable at the time, we later learn that they were right if it was the only theory they could come up with. Right. Yeah, and and that makes sense, right? You to proceed to actually push forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you have to envision what the reality may be. You have to create this model and then see how it plays out over time. Exactly. Uh, so he also says, look, it has proven conceptually useful. That's the second argument. So David suggests that string theorists uh, have given physicists insights into other problems in physics that they weren't originally setting out to solve when the theory was conceived. So it explains more than it was originally meant to explain. That seems like another good tick in the the evidence column. In other words, it's not predicting a physical outcome that we Mm -hmm. tested, but it's sort of yielding some mathematical results that, uh, that, that fit together in interesting ways. Yeah. And then the last major argument he gives is sort of that uh, the way I would put it is that it grows from proper scientific soil. You know, it's not like saying uh, saying acid gremlins Mm -hmm. that it comes out of a research project of high energy physics. And this research project of high energy physics has generated all kinds of other ideas that have been testable empirically and have been accurate. All right. Well, all three of these are making sense. They seem logical. Sure. And he, he gives another example from the past. I think it's one we mentioned earlier. But he says, you know, if, if you look at the past, uh, wh- what about atomists, people who thought that the matter in the world was made of atoms? According to Davitt, scientists thought that the world was made of atoms long before they had any way of experimentally confirming predictions of atomic theory. Of course, we have those experiments now, but... Atomic theory was the only serious theory of matter on the table, so there were no alternatives. Mm-hmm. It yielded insights that it didn't set out to yield, like it explained more than it was designed to explain. That's a, his second case with tr- string theory. And he says it emerged from a research program that had success in making other predictions that were empirically verified, you know, not from it didn't come from demonology. Right. It, it came from chemistry and physics. Uh-huh. So that's interesting to me. Now, we're going to get into some serious criticisms of this way of thinking, but this does kind of broaden the picture and suggest that maybe our way of thinking about what's a good scientific idea should be more complicated than just saying, like, well, it's something where you can do a physical test with an observable result and you can say what would falsify it and you show that that's not the case. Yeah, it... You know, I I can't help but but think of examples such as um, geocentricism, uh, heliocentricism, you know, in in terms of all of this. You know, certainly false theories that we eventually realized, oh, well, the Earth isn't the center of the universe. The sun isn't the center of the universe. And yet all of those theories were still they were still useful models for thinking about uh the, the 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 structure of the solar system before we really had a a a more nuanced understanding of what it was but with with something like string theory it's such a complex and robust uh creation you know yeah. it's the, it was such a robust theory that it seems like there's there's much more on the line and there's much more room to potentially create something that is not so yeah well and with string theory also should we treat string theory differently than other theories because it's supposedly a final theory? Mm-hmm. 
you know, if it's the ultimate oh, yeah. theory of matter in the universe, should there be different rules for assessing it than there would be for assessing, you know, some theory of gene selection or some other, you know, some theory in, in biology or regular chemistry or something? Right. Because it doesn't set itself up to evolve. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. but you look back at uh, heliocentrism and you can see its place in an evolution of thought. Yeah. But... But certainly when people are arguing string theory, they're not saying, well, this is string theory and hopefully we'll work up to wool theory and <laughs> nylon theory, you know, or, or whatever. Right. It, it, like you said, it, it's 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 argued as a as a as a, as a fix. It's the end of the line. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that that's a very good point you make about heliocentrism, because it's like um, it, it was less wrong. That yeah. was the important thing was that it was less wrong than geocentrism, even yeah. though it was still wrong. And it still allowed you to have a pretty accurate understanding of the of immediate solar mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, there there does seem to be something interesting going on in, in what David is saying. Like, it's not... Um, it's not just a bunch of junk. Then again, there might be limits to how far you can extend these ideas he's propounding in in how you're going to define science. Yeah, it almost makes it seem like it would have to be a case-by-case scenario. Uh, you'd have to take them on a case-by-case basis. And that that means there's no ab- absolute rule. It right. means there's just some guidelines, and then we have to weigh in on it. Yeah, so I, I want to read some some criticisms. One of them is the uh, the theoretical physicist uh, Sabine Hassenfelder. She responded to this interview that I mentioned, and uh, first of all, she says flatly, post-empirical science is an oxymoron. Just flat out. Okay. There is no such thing. Now, David actually defends himself by saying that he, he doesn't advocate, quote, post-empirical science, just post-empirical theory assessment, which is honest, I have to admit, is a distinction which I have failed to grasp the significance of. Uh, but uh, well, it's maybe there's something there. But anyway, uh, Hassenfelder, her, her uh, response to this had a really good quote that I wanted to read that uh, I thought sums up the attitude of the critics of post-empiricism pretty well. She said, quote, This non-empirical theory assessment, while important, can, however, only be means to the end of an eventual empirical assessment. Without making contact to observation, a theory isn't useful to describe the natural world, not part of the natural sciences and not physics. These insights that David speaks of are thus not assessments that can ever validate an idea as being good to describe nature, and a theory based on non-empirical assessment does not belong in the natural sciences. So I I think she's uh, acknowledging that maybe there is something to non-empirical theory assessment only in the sense that it might help bridge us along until we can get to a time when there is empirical confirmation. Maybe if we can eventually come up with ways of testing the predictions of string theory. But until, but if we don't ever get there, then this assessment is type of assessment is useless. Right. And then, of course, how do you get to the point where you can test it if you're not working towards that point? Yeah. You know, you don't just say, oh, accidentally, we're now in a position to test out this theory that we refused to give credence earlier. Right. Now, another uh, a voice on this matter that we came across uh, is uh, Caltech physicist uh, Sean Carroll, who uh, wrote on Edge.org, answering the question, what scientific idea is ready for retirement? His answer, falsifiability. Um you know, he he sticks by uh, empiricism, uh, but wants a different empirical paradigm, not post empiricism, but post uh, falsifiability. Simply put, and this is a quote uh, from uh, from his paper, refusing to contemplate their possible existence on the grounds of some a priori principle, even though they might play a crucial role in how the world works is as non-scientific as it gets. Yeah, and I, I think uh, Carol makes a good point there. Mm-hmm. Like, So there may, in fact, be strings at the bottom of reality. Right. You know, matter, the universe may be based on strings and, and membranes. Uh, and there may, in fact, be a multiverse. There may be other universes out there and stuff like that. It, it doesn't make sense for us to say, well, we can't entertain that possibility uh, because it doesn't fit with our model of the solution to the demarcation problem. Right. 
you know, he, he's saying we should have, we should be coming up with ways to assess these things, even if it doesn't classically fit the philosophy of science definition of science. Right. And of course, uh, Carol, he, he posits a couple of different criteria. So he, he still wants to stick with empiricism, but he proposes, I think that, uh, that it must be what definite and empirical rather than falsifiable. Uh, so that it has to be a theory that is scientific in nature has to be well defined. It's described in a clear, unambiguous way. And it also has to interact with empirical data in some way. Like it has to take into account what we know empirically about the universe, which of right. course, like string theory and, and the multiverse do, they, they explain what we already know. The problem is they don't make predictions about what we could know in the future that can be tested. Right. So you couldn't, you, you couldn't use it as a way to prop up your own hollow earth theories. Yeah. All right. So what else do we have here in terms of, uh, criticism, agreement, etc. in the string wars? Well, I've came across a nature comment piece from December 2014 by the mathematician George Ellis and the physicist Joe Silk called Scientific Method, Defend the Integrity of Physics. And they were taking a stand against post-empiricism or against at least some uses of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they start off by saying that, you know, some scientists now argue that if a theory is, quote, sufficiently elegant and explanatory, it doesn't have to be tested experimentally. And some examples they give are string theory, the kaleidoscopic multiverse, the many worlds interpretation of quantum reality. That's one, you know, so you've got the, the equations of quantum physics. We, those are very well tested. We know they're accurate, but what do they mean when you have the, you know, the supposed uh, collapse of the wave function or whatever? What do they mean really happens in reality when a probabilistic uh, wave function event happens? Well, one way of interpreting it is saying, okay, every time there's a quantum event that could go one way or another, reality actually splits into different realities, and you have different worlds where both are true. Oh, and now we're in the multiverse. Right, yeah, yeah different type of multiverse, mm-hmm. the mini-worlds quantum reality multiverse. Uh, another one would be pre-Big Bang concepts, they say, you know, uh, d- trying to do math about what happened before the Big Bang, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like what what happened before the initial singularity of all existence? Yeah. Like, was it in a giant's pocket next right. to some marbles? Right. Yeah. On, on the back of a turtle. Yeah, how do you exactly. test that? Yeah. Uh, and so they say, if you, if you decouple science from experimental false, falsification, quote, theoretical physics risks becoming a no man's land between mathematics, physics, and philosophy that does not truly meet the requirements of any. I, I love that quote. That was a great quote from, from the article. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sort of, that does it become this own purely, you know, does it become just an abstraction? Right. Has it left the realm of the natural sciences mm-hmm. without yet just becoming a, a philosophical discussion or, or abstract mathematics in, in truth? Right. So they, they make a couple of specific examples about string theory where they, they disagree with, uh, with David's arguments. Um, but then they also go on to say, you know, look, history is full of examples of elegant and compelling theories, ideas that led scientists in the wrong direction. Uh, they cite Ptolemy's geocentric universe, mm-hmm. Lord Kelvin's vortex theory of the atom, uh, Hoyle's steady state universe, you know, the, the eternal, uh, unchanging universe. Uh-huh. And in the end, they say, quote, in our view, the issue boils down to clarifying one question. What potential observational or experimental evidence is there that would persuade you that the theory is wrong and lead you to abandon it? If there is none, it is not a scientific theory. Ah. So here they're staking out basically with falsification. They're saying right. it's got to be falsifiable in, in a testable physical way. Or it is just not science. This is not meeting the definition. And they also mentioned some practical considerations that, that are worth considering. One of them is that they say, you know, even if there's some merit to post-empirical theory assessment uh, in niche subject areas where we can't perform experiments like string theory and stuff, public discussion of this could have disastrous consequences. It could cause confusion and undermine public confidence in uh, in science generally, and especially in politically charged scientific ideas like climate change, evolution, vaccines, GMO safety, all of which are empirically based. But if you start introducing this idea that, wait, some science isn't based on empirical testing, 
you're yeah. going to hurt people's confidence in the science that is. Yeah, it ceases to become this this pure engine of learning and knowledge and truth and becomes this more abstract thing where people, you're always asking, well, yeah. who's driving it? Yeah, people are asking this, wait a minute, so what? It's just people doing weird intellectual experiments in their ivory towers that can't be confirmed or denied by, yeah. by experiments. Um, and then, so they go on to say also that cl- claiming that a theory is too good for testing <laughs> opens the door to, to genuine pseudoscientists <laughs> who would claim the same thing about their ideas. My, my psychic powers are, are just too elegant and too well explanatory. You know, they, they explain the facts too perfectly to be suggest, uh, subjected to this, you know, prediction problem. Yeah. This is kind of the scenario you get into with the hand of God, uh, right. um, argument or, conversation that one might have with with someone uh where yeah, you can you you throw out the criticisms you you point out to where it wouldn't work but then they can always they can always change the argument until it's it's there's no way to possibly refute it right and so they end by saying the imprimatur of science should be awarded only to a theory that is testable only then can we defend science from attack and to me these seem like concerns that are a very important part of the conversation about science communication. It's almost more about what you and I do, Robert. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't seem especially relevant, to me at least, to the internal conversation between scientists about what kind of work in physics is worth doing and how much confidence we should have in ideas like string theory. I don't know what you think about that, but it it, it seems to me like that's kind of irrelevant. That's more just a public policy conversation. Yeah, I would, I would agree though. I mean, when it comes to reading about physics, I have to admit, I would probably choose to read about theoretical physics before I would uh, read uh, any more about uh, experimental, experimental physics. Yeah. Um, and of course we should point out that not all theoretical physics is, uh, is removed from experiment. I mean, I, no, I, think, no, no. I think most theoretical physics, you know, they're interacting with particle colliders and, and, and all the, the experiments that we're out there doing, gathering data on. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do in these cases where, where it's not just that string theorists decided that they didn't want to test their, their theories. You know, they, they are by necessity dealing with a part of reality that we can't access experimentally. That, that's just how it is. They didn't design it that way. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, they didn't pick it. it. It's just a problem with our powers. Mm hmm. And another thing I think I would acknowledge is that it seems like almost all of these people who are critics of the the idea of post-empirical theory assessment, you know, using these criteria other than physical testing, acknowledge that there's something to it. They seem to say, okay, yeah, they would probably admit that string theory has more going for it than the acid gremlins hypothesis. So there is something to the non-empirical uh, theory assessment, they just don't seem to say that it's enough to call it science. Yeah, you know, I can't help but be reminded in all this of uh, 19th century German philosopher Frederick uh, Wilhelm uh, Joseph Schelling's uh, natural philosophy, um, philosophy of nature in German. Uh, and this is a concept um, he developed as a sort of augmentation to science that would allow science to investigate the human spirit because he saw nature or the force nature and the human spirit or the force geist uh, as the two great opposing forces in cosmos with the human mind at the center of everything. Uh-huh. So nature, according to, uh, to Schilling, is the visible spirit of the invisible spirit of the mind. <laughs> but again, the mind is very much at the center of the equation. Okay. Um, now, he was a, th- this. This concept was attacked for, among other things, lack of empirical orientation. Right. Uh, and indeed, a lot of it seems to hinge on the investigation of the invisible, uh, the comprehension of the, the scientifically unverifiable through the lens of something at least linked to the substance of science. Right. <laughs> so it's it's hard to it, I, I think I thought of that a lot when I was reading over some of the material, because it seems like a, a, a good example of uh Sort of bad post empirical science. Yeah. The idea that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to take, you're going to go as far as science will take and then you're just going to completely extrapolate it into the unseen. Um, but then the counter argument is then how is that different? How is that ultimately different from something like string theory? Yeah. I mean, we're back to the demarcation problem, right? Yeah. 
like what is the rule we're using to tell the difference? I sense a difference too. I sense that there's something much more respectable about string theory and multiverse cosmology than there is about the the invisible spirit. Um, mm-hmm. but it's hard to articulate exactly what that is. Though, though, I would say that Davit's criteria are somewhat useful in that regard. Yeah, they they give you some criteria for saying, okay, we're not running a test, but here are some characteristics of these theories that do seem to make them. Uh, probabilistically and historically more likely to be correct than just gremlins or invisible spirits. Huh. You know, it reminds me of something else, and that is the, um, the Ian M. Banks culture books, which I know I bring up a lot, but, but, but he managed to fit a lot of science into these. Uh, at least in the earlier books, it's established that in this, uh, in this culture known as the culture, right. you have all of these AI minds that are really ruling everything, that rule these giant warships and they make all the decisions and they, uh, uh, they do all the heavy thinking and heavy lifting for the humans and humanoids that make up the culture. But they keep the human, humans around and they occasionally have the humans, you know, engaging in very important roles. And part of this, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, proposed is because the humans will occasionally make leaps in judgment or in theory that the machines do not, right. they cannot, yeah. uh, which comes back to that, that idea that I put forth earlier about how if you had a pure computer, a pure, pure logical entity doing the science, um, would there be limitations to that? Would, would there be this place where you would need a, a, a non-empirical uh, jump in logic that only a, a human who is you know, bound and shackled to their prior beliefs and their philosophies that only they could make? Would a, would a skeptical engine, uh, you know, a computer of scientific investigation, not be able to make intuitive speculations? Huh. You would have to yeah. have the, the, um, the, the devil's advocate computer, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Throw weird ideas out there. Huh. And then allow for testing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, this veil of testing. Indeed. Uh, so one more thing I wanted to mention before the end of this. I was actually inspired to do this episode by reading a really good article on this whole subject of, you know, post-empiricism and falsifiability in science. Uh, by the philosopher of science Massimo Piliucci mm-hmm. that he wrote in uh, Eon magazine, which is always one of our favorites around here. Oh yeah, and they're nonprofit now. So if you really like what they're doing um, over there, you can donate to the cause. By the way, yeah, but uh, so so Piliucci makes makes a point in his uh, approach to this topic. He he wonders if what if science is not it can't be demarcated in a way that a word like triangle can mm-hmm. so there's a word triangle that has a very clear definition it has what he would call quote necessary and jointly sufficient properties and that right. just means it has a description which includes everything that could possibly be a triangle and rules out everything that is not a triangle it has three angles that add up to 180 degrees yeah um, perfect description of all triangles and nothing else. What if science is simply not like that? There aren't statements that are a perfect description of science and nothing else. And rather, uh, science is more a concept that is based on what uh, Wittgenstein would call family resemblances in that it's a term like game. Yeah. Now, could you come up with a definition or a description of what games are that includes everything that's a game and excludes everything that's not a game? Yeah, this is actually something that comes up a lot when I play games, such yeah. as my argument that apples, uh, what apples to apples, uh, apples to apples. Yeah. Yeah. Not a game. No. Um, uh, as fun as uh, the other one is, what is it? Uh, the it's, one with all the awful cards in it. Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. Also very fun. But not a game. According to you. According to me. Some people would say it's a game. Is chopping wood a game? You know, when I was a kid, uh-huh. I really loved chopping wood. Some people think that is a chore, but I don't know. I guess it was just fun to swing an axe. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm certainly sh- that's the thing. You can turn non-games into games by establishing a set of rules for your uh, completion of that task. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can turn things that shouldn't be a game at all into a game. But you could get a room full of people to have a list of activities like chopping wood, apples to apples, uh, a whole bunch of things like that and say, is this a game or is it not? And mostly I think they'd agree. Hmm. You know, you, yeah. you'd get general agreement on the, on the use of this term as it applies to things. And yet we can't come up with this necessary and jointly sufficient description of what games are. Maybe science is like that. So in a sense, science is a thing that would not be able to see itself. It would not be able to, to right. judge itself because it itself does not fall into the uh, uh, specificity of form that science requires. Yeah, that could be. I don't know. Um, I, I find this topic very interesting because I don't quite know what the answer is. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Obviously, I'm not a physicist, so I'm not, I'm not working in these fields like, uh, multiverse cosmology and string theory. So I, I'm not even educated enough in them to really judge the intrinsic merits of the ideas, but just accepting that they are very good theoretical solutions. Yeah. Well, I think this is the, that, this is the appropriate feeling to have about it because we're talking about, uh, theories that take us to the edge of human understanding yeah. and extrapolate beyond. Right. And that's, that is a place where I think where we can all agree it's okay to feel, uh, inadequate. It's okay to feel befuddled and unsure because that is the nature of the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess in the end, like I, I sort of see what David is saying mm-hmm. and like his, his distinctions do make sense to me. I also see what the critics are saying about that not quite being science or at least not science in the same way that all the science we really care about is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I wonder how that should work out in terms of practical concerns like funding. Like, should we be funding uh, using public money to fund string theory research in the same way that we're funding stuff that is being tested and falsified. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me you often encounter problems when you start opening up um, the the discussion to the, the the merits of this particular scientific inquiry versus all the others. Right. You know, you kind of get into that whole "Why are you doing this when we haven't cured cancer?" Right. And then you, your answer is like, "Well, this is this is theoretical physicist physics here. We weren't going to actually." Uh, achieve uh, a cure for cancer right. uh, as that's not our area of expertise. Yeah, like the uh, the the sort of false assumption of a zero sum game. Yeah, in the investigation of science, this is something that comes up a lot. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody does a, a study that has an interesting but not necessarily technological result, and people comment under the article, "Why are they studying this when they could be curing cancer?" Right, as though what the shrimp on a treadmill scenario. Yeah. Where it's just become, oh, I can't believe it. Our tax dollars are paying for shrimps on a treadmill. And then you ignore the fact that, well, it's, it's, it's still advancing science. If it's yeah. a, you know, it's a valid study. It's just maybe not as, as sexy or as, uh, uh, you know, as, as obvious an advancement. Mm-hmm. And you don't even know in the future w- in what ways it may inform future technologies and, and other yeah. applications. I mean, that's always the the thing with science. We, we don't always know what the outcomes are going to be of learning something. Yeah, as this thing called science continues to creep out, sometimes at a snail's pace, uh, sometimes a bit faster into the unknown. All right, so how about you? How do you feel about this uh, particular topic? And do you think these so-called string wars that we're talking about here, do these, as some critics charge, distract from the real battle that should be going on against pseudoscience and the misuse of science by various outlets? Is this kind of the... uh, you know, the, the wars of the of the seven kingdoms that are occurring <laughs> while the White Walkers of pseudoscience uh, march down from the north. That That is true also. I mean, are, are we sitting here arguing about what physicists should or shouldn't be contemplating? Meanwhile, we've got alternative medicine peddlers who are mm-hmm. at the gates. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, we'd love to hear from uh, all you guys and gals about that. And if you you want to get in touch with us, you want to learn more about what we do, there are several ways to do so. First of all, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. It's where we have all of our podcasts, videos, blog posts, etc., as well as links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're active on all of those. And StuffToBlowYourMind.com itself has just recently uh, experienced a redesign, so everything's coming together there. It's looking really sharp. If you haven't checked it out or if you checked out in the past, make sure you visit it again. And if you want to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, or you want to let us know something you think we should cover in the future, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. (laughs) 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>